Well, back in the 1990s, it was the giant sneaker companies of Reebok and Nike, always out trying to outdo one another. And in one bid, Reebok unveiled the blacktop pump. Now, if you can recall, the pump was an inflation mechanism on the sneaker. And you could pump the tongue of your shoe and it would inflate. Well, Nike had to respond to this. They needed a pitch. They needed an edge or a spark. They needed a star. Well, they found what they were looking for in one man. Chuck or Sir Charles, the round mound of rebound, Charles Barkley. And in what became a highly controversial 30-second commercial, Barkley states, quote, I am not a role model. I'm not paid to be a role model. I'm paid to wreak havoc on the basketball court. Parents should be role models. Just because I dunk a basketball doesn't mean I should raise your kids. Now that commercial raised some questions. Who are the role models of our children? Who selects the role models? And what should a role model be? For the believer, we should ask some similar questions. Because role models matter. One author, G.K. Beale, says it this way, quote, We resemble what we revere, either for our ruin or restoration. And what a great quote for the Christian life. As believers, we know that our role model ought to be Jesus Christ. God has given him to us, his children. And God has chosen him. And you and I are prone to pick poor role models. Our hearts tend to go off in different directions. But God has chosen one and given us a great model. And as our role model, Jesus provides a perfect example of who we are to be and and how we are to live. This morning we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, and in this passage, believers are persecuted for their faith. After all, that's the audience that Peter's writing to. They suffer unjustly. They suffer for simply being believers. And surprisingly, part of the solution, Peter tells them to submit. To submit to immoral governments and to submit to unjust bosses. Well, I suppose once they settle down and stop thinking that Peter is crazy, they no doubt ask him, Peter, how? How do we do this? And Peter now points to Christ. He points them to Jesus Christ. Look to him as your example. Pattern your conduct after his. Jesus submitted to unjust persecution as an example for us. And in our passage this morning, we're going to follow three examples he provides. We're going to pick up in verse 21. It's chapter 2, verse 21, and we'll treat that more or less as an introduction. 
Following then, we're going to see his examples of suffering, of trust, and of purpose. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed." For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. Verse 21 begins with our calling. This is our summons. It's given to us by God. Back in chapter 1, verse 15, God has called us to be holy. Back in chapter 2, verse 9, God has called us out of darkness into light. He now calls us to, quote, this purpose. Well, that, of course, sort of prompt us to ask, which purpose, Peter? Well, the answer to this is one verse back in verse 20. It's the final sentence of verse 20. If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Back in verse 18, we learn that the recipients of this message, they're, they're servants or they're household slaves. And we applied that message last week to the modern-day workplace. So basically, when a believer patiently endures suffering at work, well, he or she is fulfilling her calling or his calling. But I don't want to miss the opportunity to apply this more broadly. This applies to more than just the household servants of the context, This is also good guidance to submit to those in authority back in verse 13. How do I do that, Peter? Well, Christ is your example. In a little bit, in chapter 3, verse 1, it's good for wives to submit to ungodly husbands. Well, Peter, how do I do that? Christ is your example. In fact, if we zoom out even further in John 15, verse 20, Jesus, who is our master, said, A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So when you and I act like Christ, and when you and I are treated like Christ, how do we respond like him? We look to our example. Jesus suffered for you. And the context for his sufferings in this morning's message, they really revolve around the cross, around those final moments of his life culminating in his death. But we also need to remember that he suffered throughout his life, not just at the end. After all, he took on flesh. He lived as a poor Jewish man. He received really bad treatment throughout his ministry, not just in those final moments. He had to endure antagonists, the religious leaders, Satan, even the Roman state. And he was always managing the ignorance, not only of the religious leaders, but also his own disciples. 
I mean, he suffered for us in many, many ways. And Peter writes, he left you an example to follow in his steps. He left you an outline. The Greek word for example in our verse, it appears only here in the Bible, one time in the New Testament. And it means literally to underwrite. It's the image of a teacher producing a writing, maybe a series of letters, and then the student tracing over those letters. That's the image here. Perhaps when you learned how to write, you traced over letters given to you by a parent or a teacher, and you're, you're carefully following each line, and you're not wanting to miss any dots. You're, you're following the same direction, and you're starting at the same place and stopping at the same place. Outside the Bible, you've heard of a man named Plato. He uses this word. He says, quote, writing masters first draw letters in faint outline with their pens for the less advanced pupils and then give them the copybook and make them write according to the guidance of their lines. So you get a picture of what Peter writes here. This is our task, to follow this example or this outline given by Jesus. And his suffering is an outline for our suffering. But better yet, his imagery, Peter's imagery, gets richer. He's not done. We are to follow in his steps, literally his footprints. One way to think about this image would be to to think about a really healthy snowfall and you're walking behind your your, your mom or dad and they leave these big footprints in the snow and you're trying to, to connect them and stay in those footprints. That's the image he gives us in addition to the first one. It does break down at some point because you and I can't walk exactly as Jesus walked. We're not going to suffer in every identical way. Certainly we can't be our own substitution or our own sacrifice for sins. We get that as well. But the point here is that Jesus suffered as the Son of God and That you and I, as sons and daughters of God, ought to expect the same thing. That's what Peter's communicating. And he says, more than that, we're called for this purpose. And we have Jesus, our example, to follow to fulfill that purpose. So depending on what gospel you believe, this may be a bit upsetting, because some preach a Jesus that you can add to your life, as though he's some sort of enhancement to it, that Jesus lives to make our lives better. But the gospel dethrones us. It takes ourselves off of our throne. It puts Jesus on the throne. And the gospel makes Jesus Lord of our lives, not we ourselves, And worse yet, there's some gospels that that preach a very strong health and wealth message, as though coming to Jesus is going to fix all of our suffering, and there'll be no more pain, and things will just get better. But the gospel of Scripture, again, doesn't promise that. That, in fact, is heaven, and that comes later. And for now, it's suffering and walking in the footsteps and tracing the outline of Jesus. And just to be clear, the gospel calls us to eternal life, and we gain that. We gain a full forgiveness as part of that gospel promise. 
We gain a never-ending grace, and we gain an unconditional love, and we gain a bottomless mercy, but we also gain suffering, unjust persecution for believing. And I speak here this morning not of just the suffering that is true of living in a fallen world, and we age, and we ache. That's, that's a real suffering, and the Bible has a message for that. And I speak this morning not only of the suffering that comes as a consequence of sin and and bad decisions. That happens to everybody. The Bible speaks to that too. But Peter, again, in the context, he speaks of suffering for believing Christ and for following in his steps. Suffering just because you name the name of Jesus. So we look to his footprints to understand God's call for our lives And it's here that we have our three examples. Jesus gives us these three examples to follow. We have first, in verses 22 and 23, an example of suffering. And we've already begun to discuss this. Jesus gives us an example of suffering. And what Peter does to show this is he goes back to the Old Testament. He goes back to Isaiah chapter 53. The prophets at times get a bit of a bad rap, um, sometimes hard to understand what they're saying. But I encourage you to read Isaiah 53, because I think as you do, it'll be clear what he's saying. And it'll be clear who he's referring to if you would go back and read that chapter anew. This is one of the most popular predictions of the Messiah in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And back in chapter 1 of verse 10, Peter writes to the prophets saying, These prophets prophesied of the grace that would come to you. They made careful searches and inquiries. They sought to know the person or time the Spirit within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And Peter points now to Isaiah as an example of that. 700 years before Jesus Isaiah detailed his sufferings, the suffering servant of God. And Peter's going to pull from Isaiah, from Isaiah 53, and he's going to apply what happens there to Jesus. And he's going to follow the order, really the order of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. He's going to apply different verses in Isaiah 53 to that order of his life. And that's really how verses 22 to 24 are laid out. In summary, in his suffering, Jesus gives us an example here of of his holiness and of his self-control, if I could summarize the verses that way. And you 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 can get that. Jesus exemplified holiness. What does Peter say? He committed no sin. That's another way to say that Jesus was perfectly holy. And not only was he arrested without cause, and all through those unjust court proceedings, he broke no law, not Rome's law, not God's law. The New Testament, on top of that, it underscores his sinlessness, that Jesus never sinned. 2 Corinthians 5, he knew no sin. Hebrews 4, he was yet without sin. First John 3, in him there is no sin. And ironically, the very Roman leader who condemned him to death said, quote, 
I find no guilt in him. I mean, call him to the witness stand. And he's going to argue in the defense of Jesus, the poorest his decisions will be. So for Peter then, he's going to focus even more on the words of Jesus as he walks us through this account. And here we see great self-control. This passage is moving here from this general sinlessness of Jesus, and it's moving in. It's getting specific. It's going to burrow down on his words. We see his perfection in his words. Jesus committed no sin, says Peter. Well, his audience says, how, Peter? How has he committed no sin? No deceit was found in his mouth. Verse 23, he did not revile in return. He uttered no threats. And keep in mind the audience for Peter. And this is a group of people who are experiencing persecution. This would resonate with them. Because persecution involves words. People saying things to try to undermine faith or to bait the believer. Back in chapter 2, verse 15, Peter describes silencing the ignorance of foolish men. You can imagine his audience getting an earful for their faith. In chapter 3, verse 9, they're not to return insult for insult. Later in chapter 4, verse 14, there's an allusion to a reviling or an insulting in the name of Christ. And more than that, I think you and I understand that to really get a read on a man, you can listen to his words. James says that we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Jesus was a perfect man. He had complete control of his body, and you can look to the tongue to know that. If he can control the mouth, he can control just about the rest of everything. And Jesus had no deceit. No deceit was found in his mouth. That's a picture of of baiting a trap or setting a snare. Jesus didn't do that to people. In his trials, especially here at the end, that's the context. He he never tried to, to set a trap for his accusers. He never tried to turn them around in their accusations, though he could have. In fact, if there ever was a man who could win a debate, it was Jesus. He he had what I would call the gift of words. He's so, so shrewd and so eloquent and so perfect in how he argued and contended for the faith and won people to himself. I mean, can you imagine having the perfect comeback all the time and never sinning using it? When Peter says it, there was no deceit found in the mouth of Jesus. He never lowered himself. He never stooped to fight on the terms of his antagonist. He says he did not revile in return. In his commentary in 1 Peter, James McKnight, he, he lists through the Gospels all the names that Jesus is called in his ministry. He's called a Samaritan. That was meant to degrade him. He was called a glutton and a drunkard and a blasphemer. He was called a demoniac who's possessed by the devil. Jesus was accused of being empowered by Beelzebul. That's a false god. Accused of misleading the nation and preventing taxation and being a deceiver of the people. Yet never did he revile in return. 
Now, the Lord used some very colorful language at times, but he didn't sin in using it, very shrewd in how he used it. And at his trial especially, he didn't return insult for insult. And thirdly, Peter mentions that he uttered no threats. I mean, he could have. Jesus had the manpower to do it. He told Pilate, this is the Roman governor conducting his trial at one point, he told him that he could call upon servants who would stand up and fight for him and release him from his custody. And he told Peter of 12 legions of angels that he could have summoned. They're at his disposal. And doing the Roman math, that's about 72,000 angels. But that's not Jesus. He did not retaliate. And when suffering, he did not lose control. Isaiah 53, verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. And I wonder for Peter, if as he wrote this, in the corner of his room, propped up, rested a sword. A sword that 30 years ago he used in retaliation in an ungodly and an uncontrolled way. And that is Jesus, in an exercise in that moment of what I would call a holy submission, in an exercise of humble self-control, he stretches out his arms to be seized by these Roman authorities. Peter sliced off the ear of a Roman captor. Boy, he's come a long way. It's quite the contrast and quite the change in Peter for him to write this way as he looked at that sword, if he still had it. I wonder, is the Lord calling for us to change in some way today, too? To follow this example of Jesus in his suffering. Because we're never going to find a less deserving person and a more perfect person. And we're never going to find an example of a more unjust suffering. Christ provides you and I as an example of suffering. And to submit is to suffer, to be completely in the will of God, to be fully obedient to God, and to be suffering. This is a picture of the cross. I think it's a good reminder for us, I, I, and I do this myself, we'll be discussing how God has answered prayer, and I'll speak of how perhaps I'm feeling better, and God has answered that prayer, but that's not always true. Could not be feeling better, and God still answered that prayer because suffering is part of our purpose and part of our calling. And that's especially true when it comes to persecution. Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example. Well, there's a second example in this passage here. It's the last part of verse 23, and it's the Lord's example of trust. The Lord's example of trust. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Peter presents a contrast 
It's a contrast first in, in regards to people. There's those who revile Jesus and they're set against God his Father. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 8 reads, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. That's the role of those who are reviling Jesus. But set against that is God the Father who, quote, judges righteously. There's the contrast. It's those who are working to undermine and harm Jesus set against God. There's also a contrast in how Jesus responds to them, to these two parties. His accusers set against his response to God. He gave his accusers silence. He had nothing to say to them, nothing to respond to them. But toward God his Father, he what? He kept entrusting himself. Bound up in that word is this repeated, present tense activity of Jesus. Over and over again, he's entrusting himself, giving himself over to God. That's the contrast. And in this passage, Jesus is doing this, then not out of fear of his accusers and some perceived power that they might have, but he does this out of confident trust in God and the true power that God does have. Jesus trusted the judgments of God. Not only in terms of judgment as you and I might think of it, and some kind of legal proceeding, but, but the, the will of God and the decisions of God, those that bring great blessing and joy and those that are, are more difficult and painful. He trusted God's decisions. That he judges righteously means quite simply that he cuts it straight. Some of your Bibles end verse 23 with the word justly, just underscoring again that God's decisions are right, God's decisions are perfect. It's worth remembering on the night of his arrest, Jesus underwent six different trials. There was the informal Jewish trial. There was the more formal Jewish trial. There was the full Jewish council trial. Then he got sent over to the Romans. He had the Roman governor trial. I call the second opinion trial as the fifth trial. And then he had a final Roman trial. And we mentioned it earlier, in these last three in every Roman trial, he was declared not guilty. They can't find guilt in him. And every single one lacked a true righteous judgment. That is found in God alone. And that's what Peter says here. God can be trusted. Continue to entrust yourself to God. Jesus did this because God judges righteously. And the good thing about this for you and I, the good thing about suffering, is that what it does is it strips down this facade that we have. And it leaves us what I would call bare before God. It leaves us exposed before God. We're helpless. And the bad thing about suffering is that it strips down the facade that we have because it leaves us bare before God. And I fear that oftentimes we are a very self-reliant people who aren't very good at being bare before God. Maybe we call upon Him when things get really dicey or if we don't have the solution as fast. But Jesus kept entrusting himself to God. Trusting that God would judge righteously. And when you and I follow in this example, and that's the goal this morning, 
We're giving God our mind. We're giving God all of who we are and all of how we think. And this is especially helpful in terms of persecution because we need to see our persecutors the way God sees them. They're eternal souls who are broken. What does Jesus say about them? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is hard to do. We need to give God our mind and how we think about them. We need to give God our body. What does Jesus say? Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, not as I will, but as as you will. So often I want to say, not as you will, but as I will. But to trust God is to give all of that to him. And to trust God is to give him our attitude. Ultimately, our suffering, our persecution, it's ultimately about God. Father, hallowed be your name and your will and your decision and your outcome and your glory. Jesus is our example of trust and he's our example of suffering. And thirdly this morning, he's our example of purpose. He gives us an example of purpose. One Russian author wrote, the mystery of human existence lies not in just staying alive, but in finding something to live for. It's like the plight of the human condition. What am I here for? What do I have to live for? But you and I, that question's answered. Jesus lived a purposeful life. You live a purposeful life. You can wake up every morning knowing your life has purpose because Jesus gave it purpose. Peter writes that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. You were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Jesus not only gave us an example, but right now he lives, he stands to support us in that. And in these few verses here, these last two, Peter communicates three anomalies or or three paradoxes of our faith. And I know we used that word last week. In verse 24, we, we live to die. We live to die. We have to wrap our minds around this. You and I, we live to die. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. That's the purpose for his life. As you read through the Gospels, maybe through the New Testament, you get the impression that Jesus had a couple of different reasons that he came. Maybe there's different purposes that Jesus lived and died. Well, one of the leading purposes, if not the leading purpose, is to to die for sin, to obey God, to honor God in his obedience and give his life as a ransom. And to quote him, Jesus said it that way in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Even the Son of Man, referring to himself, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Maybe the Lord's own purpose statement for his life given there. Jesus died as our substitute. He gave his life for ours. Jesus takes the believer's place. He pays the price for our sins. And again, sin is the breaking of God's law. Sin separates us from God. This is a very large break. It is a break that you and I cannot mend. We cannot bridge that gap. 
And God requires a sinless sacrifice to do so. And Jesus does that. His sacrifice bridges the gap or closes the gap so that by faith in him, we're right with God. Verse 24 says that he took our sins upon himself. And that means that if you believe that message, that Jesus died and rose again for you, that God doesn't look at your sin as real as it is, but he looks at Jesus and sees you as not guilty, gap covered, gap closed. The word for cross in this passage is actually tree. Many of your Bibles have that, and there's an important distinction here. The Roman cross, which is what my Bible uses, certainly signified something. It was a pretty severe death penalty. The Romans figured out the death penalty on a pretty gruesome and horrific level. The cross signifies that. But to die on a tree, that's Old Testament. Deuteronomy 21 verse 22, this is the law for Old Testament Israel, states, quote, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang there all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. In other words, to the Jews, according to God's law, he who hangs on a tree is accursed of God. And Jesus became a curse. He became a substitute, a sacrifice for all who believe upon him. He lived to die. And that's true for you and I this morning. Because why else did he die? Well, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus lived to die and we live to die. That you and I would take our sin now that we've believed upon Jesus and we would nail it to the cross, we'd bury it in the tomb, and we'd stop resurrecting it. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, says Paul, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And just as we must begin to act like those who are alive, we must act like those who are healed. It's the second anomaly or the second difficulty in this text. By his wounds, you were healed. Notice the past tense there. You were healed. Since we're healed, we go and live as people who are healed. That we are well again. We don't dig up caskets. We don't make reservations for hospital beds. Those are things that sick and dead people do. But we're alive in Jesus. That's what Peter's saying here, that Jesus has given us life and he's given us health. And again, this is spiritually speaking, we were sick. We were not well. We were slaves of sin. We were stuck in sin. But Christ healed us. Theodoret, a 5th century theologian, says it this way. He calls this new healing, quote, a new and strange method of healing, he says. The doctor suffered the cost, and the sick received the healing. So we live to die. Christ was wounded to heal. And finally, the third paradox, we've wandered to safety. And the paradox of this is that sheep don't wander to safety. 
Peter compares us to sheep. He says, you were continually straying like sheep. He did this because sheep stray. They're quite good at being scared. They scare very easily. In some reading, I learned that they could be scared from a thing as simple as a a falling branch off a tree or a bunny running through the meadow. Sheep get curious. And following out their curiosities, before you know it, they're lost and they're isolated. Sheep run. They run anywhere when they're afraid and they follow blindly. More than that, their vision is a bit wacky. But what Peter wants us to see here is that without a shepherd, we are toast. We know that our cats and dogs might run away. They might return home. They know how to do that on their own. A sheep will never do that. When that happens to a sheep, when that sheep is lost, when they get bewildered, they just lay down where they are and start bleeding over and over again. Does that not describe a person's life before Christ? Before our shepherd set out and found us and brought us and put us in the fold, this is our life. This is my life. Lives filled with fears and worries and anxieties. They're lives driven by desires. That's what we know to do. What do I feel like doing? What does my heart tell me to do? Don't do what your heart tells you to do. No matter how cool the t-shirt looks or the bumper sticker reads, the heart is exceedingly deceptive. We were seeking satisfaction in all kinds of places. We did it without any wisdom, without any discernment, certainly without consulting the Bible. And our minds are blinded by unbelief, says God. But now, you have returned to the shepherd, the guardian of your souls. What a great description of Jesus. In our passage already, Peter has pointed back to Jesus. He says, look to him, look back as your example, look back to him as your substitute. Now, while you're doing that, just know that he is your shepherd now and your guardian now. And as a shepherd, Jesus cares for you and I. He embodies all of that beautiful language of Psalm 23. Everything that's said in Psalm 23 of of the Lord It can be said of Jesus. Jesus provides. Jesus comforts. Jesus leads. Jesus restores. Jesus guides. And as a guardian, the second description, Jesus protects. I'd say this is noteworthy because, again, Peter writes to believers suffering for their faith. Back in chapter 1, he said that you were protected by the power of God through faith. You need to hear that when you're persecuted. A persecution or suffering, it's going to bring really hard questions about God. It's going to undermine or it's going to cause us to doubt our assurance. But Jesus is the guardian of your soul, says Peter. You've got to come back. You've got to drink from this stream. You've got to remember that Jesus is your shepherd. You've got to remember that he's your guardian. And Peter here is writing then in summary to to these believers who are suffering for their faith. And as he does, he points them to Jesus. He doesn't say, dig down deep within yourself. You can find a way. He doesn't say, grab a hold of that boot and pull it up. He says, no, look to Jesus. 
the Lord submitted to unjust persecution as an example for us. Christ left you an example for you to follow in his steps, Peter writes. So this morning I want to conclude, I don't want to be ignorant of how difficult it is to follow Christ. I'm also aware of how rarely we suffer persecution for our faith. So as I conclude, I want you to, on one hand, be challenged, or on the other hand, I want you to be encouraged. In Matthew chapter 16, Peter rebukes Jesus. That's right. The man who wrote our letter today thought that he would give Jesus some corrective advice. It was when Jesus announced to Peter and others that he would bear the cross and he would go and die for sins, Peter rebuked him. He interjected, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. You and I know that there's a road that Jesus had to travel. And in a similar way that his disciples, they must travel that road. And when Jesus replied to Peter, he he included that in his reply. Because he said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To follow his example, we have to want to. That's where Peter begins, or where Jesus begins. Do you desire to follow Jesus? Or do you find your desires divided? To follow his his example, we've got to deny ourselves. We have to say no to some things. We're going to have to say no inevitably to things that are, are, are more comfortable or there's least resistance or it's just easier. Sacrifice for Jesus. It's going to stretch us. It's going to hurt sometimes. And Jesus says to do this, you're going to have to take up your cross. What he means by that is whatever sin or sins that are, 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 are particular to you, and they're different for all of us, we're going to have to, to pick them up. We're going to have to follow him. And we're going to have to follow Jesus. That's how he can, concludes. We're going to have to trace his example. We're going to have to walk in his footsteps. And if we do these things, we're going to suffer for our faith. Because at some point, we're going to have to make a decision. Am I going to pick up my cross here or not? And if I do, it's going to hurt. I'm going to have to suffer. And Peter says, you've been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you. But he also says, if you do what is right and suffer for it, this finds favor with God. The word's grace. This finds grace with God. God is pleased at that. And this then was our challenge. But for an encouragement, and here's your encouragement, following Peter's rebuke of Jesus, Jesus gave this talk on the cross-bearing, and following this self-focus of Peter on keeping Jesus for himself and molding him and not seeing him go to the cross, it was just a few days later that Jesus went on top of a mountain, and Jesus took Peter along. He could have taken someone else along, but he took Peter. And Peter witnessed his transfiguration where he got a glimpse of Jesus in what we call his his glorified or his heavenly state, a taste of what is to come. So then if this morning you've said, God forbid it, Lord, when it comes to suffering and when it comes to submission, Jesus invites you up the mountain in a similar way. You're called to come and be part of what he's doing. 
and to have an intimate closeness in that fellowship and to get a glimpse of the power that will become manifest in your life when you step out in faith and you endure persecution and you endure suffering, God will show up. And whenever these things happen, it finds favor with God. And when you find favor with God, you're just like Christ. Our example of purpose, our example of suffering, and our example of trust. Let's pray together. Father, I don't believe any of us seek out persecution or seek out suffering. I don't believe that you would want us to. But in doing what you want in striving to be faithful and obedient, it will find us. And I pray, Father, for every soul here this morning, not only that they would know Jesus Christ, but that they would live in a way that would inevitably bring suffering. I pray, Father, for your people that when we suffer, we would not grow discouraged, we would not grow despondent. I pray, Father, for those moments that you would show up in the lives of your people in very pronounced and powerful ways. And I pray, Father, that you would meet us where we are today and strengthen us to follow the example that Jesus gave. Thank you for your power and thank you for your promises. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.